The Perils of Pauline, Chapter Fifteen, by Charles Goddard. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Fifteen, The Death Stone. As the thrilled and frightened Indian lay prostrate at her feet. He might well have believed her to be some creature from another world. Her face was very pale, and round it fell in tumultuous glory the cascades of her golden hair. Her dress was torn to shreds by the jagged rocks, and there was blood upon the delicate hands that she held out in pleading to the only living thing she saw, the red man. He did not move. She stepped nearer, and stooping, gently touched his shoulder. At the touch he trembled like a leaf, but raised his head and looked at her with terror and awe and adoration in his eyes. "'Won't you help me? I've been a prisoner in the cave. I must find Mr. Haynes. Haynes, do you hear? Or go to Rockvale.' "'Rockvale,' she repeated, hoping that the names at least he might understand." He motioned questioningly towards his horse, and at her nod he sprang up and brought the animal to her side. Helping her to mount, he took the bridle and began to lead the way into the thickly wooded hills. The journey was slow and arduous, but it was not long. Darkness had not yet fallen when the hill trail dipped into a valley and Pauline's weary, hopeful eyes looked down upon a village on the plain. The hope vanished quickly, as she realized that the houses of the village were teepees, and that the people that moved among them were braves and squaws. An Indian boy of perhaps twelve years sprang suddenly from a thicket beside the trail, gave one glance at her, and with a shriek set off at full speed toward the teepees. Cries sounded and resounded from the hills. Tom-toms were beating. She became aware that the Indians were swarming about her and acclaiming her a guest of unusual honor. They stopped her horse at the entrance to Red Snake's teepee. The great chief stepped forth himself, with Big Smoke, the medicine man, close behind him. The prophet, who had foretold the coming of the great white queen, wore a mien of pride and triumph, even as he bowed low before Pauline. But of all the red folk in Shiwaki village, Big Smoke was undoubtedly the most amazed at the fulfillment of his prophecy. The braves, who were assigned to lift Pauline from her horse and bear her into the chief's teepee, were surprised that one immortal should be so weak as almost to fall into their arms, so weary as to be scarcely able to walk. But Pauline, seated upon a high pile of furs within the teepee, where the weird light of a fire fell upon her pallid features and her flowing hair, presented a picture strange and marvelous. They gathered around her, Red Snake and the medicine man in the center of the adobe, the lesser chiefs behind them, and in another circle the ranks of the braves. Even in her utter exhaustion, the savage solemnity of the gathering fascinated Pauline. 
Had she been left alone, she would have fallen asleep upon the piled furs. But this low muttering, grim-visaged assemblage of the red man forced her to respectful attention. That they honored her, she understood. But she saw, too, that the Indians were all armed, and some of them were painted. As Red Snake arose to address the tribe, a menacing murmur filled the teepee, and the young chiefs whetted their knives upon the ground. Red Snake's harangue, unintelligible to Pauline, had an electrical effect upon the Indians. Frequently as he spoke, he turned toward her, and always when he did so he bent his head upon his breast, and raised his mighty arms in token of submission to a power mightier than his own. As he finished, Pauline arose, swaying a little from her great weakness. She shook her head in token that she did not understand. Her outstretched, pleading hands bewildered, but subdued the warlike assembly. Red Snake called a ringing summons, and from the rear circle of the audience shuffled forward the strangest man Pauline had ever seen. His undersized, stooping form was garbed in a miner's cast-off red shirt, a ranchman's ex-trousers, a pair of tattered moccasins, and a much-dented derby hat, with a lone feather in the band of it. It was White Man's Hat, a half-breed interpreter. As he approached, cringing and bowing, Pauline noted that a penetrating, not unkindly eye gleamed from under his bushy brow, scrutinizing her in flashes between his obsequence. Unlike the other Indians, he was not afraid to look the great white queen in the face as he solemnly repeated the last words of Red Snake. According to the prophecy, you have come from the heart of the world to lead us against those who steal our land. Pauline stood for a moment in complete bewilderment. Then, as the meaning of the words with the meaning of the strange gathering flashed upon her mind, she took a step forward, speaking in earnest protest. But she spoke only to the chief, for the Indians had broken all restraint and were crushing their way out of the teepee with cries and brandishing of weapons. They swept the little interpreter with them, and Red Snake saw in Pauline's look and tone of appeal only the pleading of a wronged goddess for vengeance upon her enemies. He called the women of his household, who shyly led the queen away. Darkness had fallen as the women glided ahead of her to a spot outside the main village, where a spacious teepee had been erected apart. Only a peaceful moon and a firmament glittering with stars lighted their path. But from the town behind came terrifying yells, the rattle of tom-toms and occasionally a rifle-shot, as the braves prepared their spirits for the test of battle. Pauline found her new home filled with all the luxuries and sacred relics of the tribe. There were rugs richer than those in the chief's house. The walls were festooned with strung beads, and on the large, low couch of bearskins lay the most splendid of Indian raiment. 
the women, with better understanding than men, of the earthly needs of immortals, made her lie down, while they bathed her aching temples and wounded hands, replaced her torn garments with a gorgeous blanket robe, and smoothed her flying tresses into long, comfortable braids. Other women came bringing food, and there was a pipe and a pouch of agency tobacco with which the goddess might soothe the hours after repose. Pauline ate eagerly while the women looked on in silent approval. When she had finished, she arose smiling and signed to them that she would rest. They left softly, and neither the exciting recollections of the day's adventures nor the tumult of the braves outside could hold her for a moment longer from the blessedness of sleep. She slept far into the next morning, but so did the village, for the Indians had reveled to exhaustion. It was nearly noon before she attired herself in a fringed and beaded dress of buckskin, with leggings and exquisite little moccasins, and laughingly permitted one of the women attendants to place a painted war-feather in her hair. Thus clad, and with her wide braids falling, she sat regally to receive the morning call of Red Snake. She was beginning to take a tremulous pleasure in the game of being an immortal. Pauline's questing spirit was too happy an adventure not to find a thrill in being thus translated from hungering captive to reigning queen, from queen to angel. Red Snake's call was formal and politely brief. He brought with him the amusing interpreter to inquire if the spirit had found comfort in the hospitality of his people, and more particularly if the war-dance of the preceding night had given her satisfaction. Pauline replied with gracious solemnity that her spirit had found good repose, and had been comforted by the pleasant music. "'And when will the White Queen lead us against our enemies, the men of her own color, but not of her kind?' inquired the chief with childlike eagerness. Pauline hesitated an instant, after the interpreter repeated the question. Then, recovering herself, she answered gravely, "'Today, Red Snake, the queen rests from her long journey out of the happy hunting-ground. Tomorrow also, upon the next day, perhaps, she will lead the warriors.' The little interpreter's keen eyes flashed understandingly as he left out the word perhaps in repeating her answer. Red Snake was elated. He made profound salutations, promised that the war-party would do her honor, and hastened away to announce the news. The interpreter lingered, pretending to smooth the door-rug. He looked up suddenly, and his eyes met Pauline's with an expression of friendly interest. Instinctively, she accepted the tacitly offered friendship. "'You are a white man. You speak English,' she said. Oh, part white, uh, part red. You speak all white,' he added significantly. "'Of course,' she whispered, stepping to his side. "'I am not a queen, not a spirit. I do not know why they believe I am. But I must get away, to Rockvale, to Mr. Haynes's ranch, to the white people, anywhere. You will help me?' He looked at her pityingly now. 
He had believed that she was an accomplice of the medicine man in a shrewd fraud, and he had merely wanted to share the joke, risky as it was. To find her an accidental and unwilling monarch struck him dumb. Oh, that is very hard, he said slowly. Look! He parted the folds of the teepee door curtain, so that she looked out toward the village. Three women sat next the door, and beyond were groups of braves still in their war paint, some conversing, some stalwart and still. They seemed to be doing nothing in particular. Well? questioned Pauline. He led her across the teepee to a narrow slit in the rear curtain. Through this she peered as she had peered through the door, and saw exactly what she had seen through the door, women crouching at their tasks in the near foreground, an armed circle of warriors beyond. Now she understood. I am a prisoner, then? They will guard you night and day. Why? It was prophesied that a great white queen would come to lead them to battle. You have come, as the prophet said, and you have promised to lead them to battle. Above all, be proud and not afraid. The interpreter hesitated a moment. There was another white queen whose coming was prophesied many hundreds of years ago, he said. She came. She led the Indians' victory over other Indians, and then she vanished in the strangest way. I would tell you of it, but I am afraid. They say her spirit is always near. Some day... You may know how she vanished. Before she could speak again, he had glided out of the teepee. While Pauline was away, Harry had planned to accomplish mighty labors. With masculine fatuity, he let himself believe, before she went away, that a man can get more work done with his goddess afar than when Cupid has a desk in his office. It did not take more than thirty-six hours to turn separation into bereavement, not more than forty-eight to turn his freedom for work into slavery to the fidgets. The office, instead of a refuge, became a prison to him. However, he made a pretense of sticking to the grind, and it was not until the Thursday on which his charting showed Pauline would arrive at Rockvale that he actually quit and went home. He slipped into the library to be alone. It was more restful here. As he sat in the great leather chair and unfolded a newspaper, the portrait of Pauline smiled brightly down at him in seeming camaraderie. At his side stood the mummy so intimately associated with her and his dead father's strange vision from the tomb. Harry began to read, but he was still nervous to the point of excitement, and his thoughts wandered from the words. He was suddenly conscious of another presence in the room. He let the paper fall and gazed intently at the portrait. But a moment later, Harry Marvin sprang excitedly from the chair and fairly leaped toward the picture. From somewhere out of the dim air of the library, a hand had reached and touched his. It had touched his shoulder and then, with a commanding finger, had pointed upward at the picture on the wall. The mummy, it has warned again, gasped Harry. 
Polly, Polly, he cried to the portrait. I'm coming. Just hold on. He strode back to the table and pressed a bell. Tell Reynolds to pack me up, Bemis, he charged the astonished butler. Tell him it's for Montana, in a rush. Have a machine ready for me in fifteen minutes. Even Bemis's constitutional aversion to haste was overridden. He sped into the hall, calling to the valet as Harry picked up a telephone. Hello, this is H.B. Marvin. I want our private car attached to the Chicago Flyer, he said. No matter if it holds up the Flyer. I'll have President Grigsby's authorization in your hands in five minutes. Thank you. Goodbye. As he reached the door of the machine, a messenger boy turned up the steps. Harry called to him, took the telegram, and read Mrs. Haynes' message, Pauline kidnapped. Come at once. With a muffled ejaculation, he dropped the slip of paper and sprang into the car, which in ten minutes pulled up to the station, just as the disgruntled but curious trainmen were coupling the luxurious Marvina to the eighteen-hour express. Owen, coming quietly down the steps of the Marvin house, picked up the telegram which Harry had let fall. Reading it, he smiled. And he was still smiling when another messenger boy followed him to the door. Owen took the second message, and the smile broadened into an ugly grin as he read, Raymond Owen, Fifth Avenue, New York. All's well. Hicks. Five days after the disappearance of Pauline, the express stopped again at Rockvale Station. As Harry swung from the rear step to the dingy platform, there were many curious eyes to observe his arrival, but the watchers were mostly women and children. The men of Rockvale were still out on the long hunt for Pauline. Harry hurried first to the station telephone. Sykes had got Mrs. Haynes on the wire as soon as the smoke of the express had been sighted ten miles away. But all she could tell Harry was that there was nothing to tell. His lips were set in a hard line as he hung up the receiver. He asked a few hasty questions of Sykes, hurried across to the little hotel, paid for a room, and hired a horse. Blankets and provisions strapped behind, he went out and away up the road to the mountains within an hour. And while he urged his sturdy little mount to better speed on his uncharted journey, Pauline, not twenty miles away, was preparing for the last journey she might ever make. The blow had fallen. Her royal place, her immortal power, had vanished. The Indians had permitted one postponement of the day of battle. She had said that the spirits had spoken to her and warned against bloodshed upon that day. It should be the second day thereafter, the spirits had said. The Indians were disappointed, but they bowed to the edict. The morrow passed quietly, but on the next day— the fifth of her royal captivity. She was summoned from her house by the assembled chiefs in battle-paint and feathers. She tried to whisper through the doorway that the spirits had forbidden again, but Red Snake answered, You are greater than all other spirits. You will lead us today. Tell them, said Pauline to the interpreter, 
that the white queen does not lead today red snake his face black with anger after haranguing the chiefs turned to pauline daughter of the earth twice our warriors have been ready for battle and you would not lead them today you must go before the oracle and prove your immortality the oracle will tell the warriors departed only the little interpreter remained what does it mean cried pauline it is the race with the great death stone he answered and his own voice trembled but he whispered i will ride i will try to find help wait he slipped under the back of the teepee unseen by the excited indians he made his way to the line of ponies with lariats and rifles swung from their saddles he picked one and mounting rode slowly out of the village speaking here and there to the braves he met pauline left alone fell upon her knees and prayed harry met haynes and two of his posse on the road to the mountains they were on their way back to a general rendezvous ordered by the sheriff but harry continued on his way up the mountain mile after mile the little mustang put behind him while the sun was still high on the slope of a hill they came to a crossroads and harry riding almost blindly reined to the right the pony swerved wildly to the left instinctively harry gave the frightened horse its head a half mile farther on the animal stopped and sniffed the wind at the same instant harry heard a feeble shout from the road a weirdly garbed little half-breed lay on the ground holding the bridle of the horse that had thrown him ankle gone he explained riding for help i help was you ride now white girl they are killing her up there now white girl where talk fast man two miles over the mountain and down to the valley straight ahead you go to the bottom of the valley not to the top not where the indians are climb tree take my rope it's the only chance now harry caught the coiled lariat from the other saddle and rode as he had never ridden before all was vague in his mind except that pauline was near was in peril and he must reach her how by road and trail he ever reached the valley of the death stone harry never knew perhaps chance perhaps some invisible courier guided him to the lonely spot after long hard riding he was attracted by the low rumble of many voices lifted in a sort of chant following the voices he came to the foot of a steep cliff-side where a long trench partly of natural formation partly hewn from the stone made a chute or runway from mountain-top to valley at the upper end of the runway a motley band of indians were engaged in some weird worship harry started his horse up the steep in the shelter of the woods when he came to a spot where a huge tree limb crossed the runway he remembered the little half-breed's words climb the tree it is the only chance 
almost at the same instant from the midst of the indian group emerged two giant braves carrying a white woman between them they placed her in the runway her golden hair unbound floated on the wind harry choked back a cry threw aside his rifle caught the lariat and swinging up the tree crawled swiftly out on the overhanging limb concealed by the foliage he waited a rifle cracked and for the first time he saw that at the top of the runway behind pauline stood a mighty boulder almost perfectly round the diameter of which about five feet fitted the trench so well that it could roll in it like a ball in a bowling gutter none even among the indians knew how many times the stone of death had rolled and been dragged back again to the top of the cliff the stains upon it were unnumbered up on its surface was written in blood the doom of the false prophets and pretending immortals none had ever won in the race with the death stone the crack of the rifle was the signal for a group of red men to press behind the stone to free it on its fearful course it was also the signal for pauline to run her hair streamed wildly in the wind as she sped like a frightened deer down the deadly path the rifle sounded again and the indians heaved the stone into the trench it rumbled as it came it gained on the fleeing girl they had planned to prolong the torture by giving her a hopeless lead dancing gesticulating shouting the indians watched the race only one watcher was silent and motionless hidden by the leaves he braced himself upon the tree limb for the first moments after the rock was released he had turned sick and dizzy now as they came near the thing relentless but inanimate pursuing the thing helpless beautiful and most precious to him of all things in the world not the quiver of a muscle hindered the desperate task that he had set himself a moment later he was sobbing like a child as he half dragged half carried pauline to his waiting horse by the magic of luck by the mystery of a protecting fate the lariat noose had fallen about her shoulders to the amazed and terrified indians up the cliff she had soared suddenly spirit-like out of the trench and vanished in the foliage of the tree while the boulder thundered on cheated of its prey but swiftly out of the woods upon the open plain below appeared a rider with a woman clasped before him on the saddle the baffled indians scurried for their horses they reached the valley they gained upon the burdened horseman and his tired horse they fired as they rode the bullets spitting venomously in the dust around harry and pauline the pony stumbled harry jerked it up and it struggled bravely on but the cries behind sounded louder the bullets hit nearer suddenly the firing increased there were more cries and harry reining the pony saw galloping over the ridge to the westward the full posse of hal haines 
They fired as they came. They cut between him and the Indians. He stopped the pony and lifted Pauline to the ground. My precious one, God bless you and forgive us all, sobbed Mrs. Haynes as Polly was caught in her mothering embrace. And you, you had to come all the way from New York to save her, she added, turning to Harry. Don't say anything about it, Mrs. Haynes, he said in a stage whisper. I came out here to rest and avoid publicity. End of chapter 15 The Death Stone